Chapter 31, Part 1 of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hedge and Ditch, a summer term's work for a school form. The Hedge. The hedge that I have in my mind shows a good variety of plants, though it is not richer than many others situated in that part of Yorkshire where the magnesian limestone underlies the soil. If I were a schoolmaster and had such a hedge near at hand, I should make it part of my business to explore it with the boys. Before or during the natural history work, I should try to get the hedge and two or three neighboring fields surveyed. Among other things, every large tree should be set down on the map in its proper place and with its name. What practice in elementary geometry and mensuration we should get out of the survey. What light the construction of our own plan of a few well-known fields would throw upon the maps which are used in school. Ordnance maps of the district on more than one scale should be pinned up where they could be seen every day. The exercises in mensuration I pass over here, for we have not nearly time and space enough to treat of my proper subject, the natural history of the hedge and ditch. Part of the inquiry relates to certain details of common plants which have often been handled in elementary books. Here I shall often put questions instead of giving information. Most of the questions are easy, and nearly all can be answered by direct observation of the objects concerned. Where help seems to be called for, a numeral refers the reader to the hints at the end of the chapter. Questions are not only excellent for revision of old lessons, but also for directing the investigation of new facts. Trees of the Hedge Eight kinds of trees grow in or close to our hedge, namely sycamore maple, hedge maple, elm, ash, beech, hawthorn, holly, and elder. These trees employ two distinct methods of dispersing their seeds. What are the two methods? Can any reason be given why elder, hawthorn, and holly should employ a different method of dispersal from such trees as elm and ash? Which of all these trees comes first into leaf? Which last? Which first casts its leaves? Which last? Which bear evergreen leaves? When does holly change its leaves? Some evergreen trees change all their leaves at one time. Is this true of all? Two of the trees on our list are defended by sharp points. Against what do they need defense? Are there any prickly shrubs or herbs in our hedge? Classify the following prickly plants, one, according to the use which they make of their prickles, and two, according to the part of the plant which is prickly. Holly, hawthorn, firs, bramble, briar. Does hawthorn remind you of an old lesson on stipules? What is the difference between a stipule and a segment of a divided leaf? Which of the eight trees on our list cast their stipules when the buds open, which keep their stipules through the summer? What is the use of the stipules in each case? Mention any trees on our list which have compound leaves. How do you distinguish a leaflet of a compound leaf from a simple leaf, and a compound leaf from a number of simple leaves growing on the same spray? Our hedge is mainly a hawthorn hedge, and we must particularly attend to this tree. What is the haw from which it takes its name? Sometimes the tree is called whitethorn. Do you know of any blackthorn? See Hint 1. Hawthorn trees, if left to themselves, grow tall and cast a deep shade, which hinders the undergrowth and causes spaces to appear between the trunks. This does not suit the farmer, who wants a close hedge to keep his cattle from straying. How does he treat an overgrown hawthorn hedge? Many of the topmost sprays of the hawthorn hedges around us end in knobs. 
what are these knobs? They cannot be buds, for you will find that they last all through the summer, and in the withered state through the following winter. If you examine them closely, you will find that they are galls and consist of brown, stunted leaves. The growing tips have been pricked and gnawed so that they could not grow into straight and regular shoots. They have done their best to put forth leaves, but some of the leaves have been killed, while others are crowded and distorted. What was it that pricked all these growing tips? The grub of a small, two-winged fly that you could hardly see without a lens. This grub fed on the soft, juicy tissues of the growing shoot until at length it stopped feeding, fell to the ground, and entered the earth, where it turned into a pupa. The pupa turned into a fly, and by midsummer only the distorted knobs remained to show where the flies had been reared. The fly bears a cumbrous name, Sesodomaya cartigi. We might call it the hawthorn fly. Nearly allied to this is the hessian fly, which in some countries is a serious pest to the wheat crops. Of late years, the hawthorn fly has been unusually mischievous in Yorkshire. Earlier in the season, before the hawthorn fly begins its attack, a small caterpillar is often found in the hawthorn buds. There is more than one maple in the hedge. Besides the sycamore maple, there is a smaller maple which rarely grows higher than 20 feet. This is the hedge maple. Bentham calls it the common maple, but that name would not enable most people to tell what species was meant. In many parts of the country, the sycamore maple is the commoner of the two. Gather leaves, flowers, and fruits of each when you have opportunity. See also whether they have the same kind of bark. Take a green elder shoot, snap it across, and draw the ends gently apart. As you do so, you will pull out some slender threads, which will lengthen to perhaps a couple of inches before they break. What are these threads? The microscope or even a pocket lens will tell you that they are spiral vessels. Such vessels are characteristic of young wood and are generally found in the first formed bundles close to the pith. The later formed vessels have a different structure. Spiral vessels have the advantages of great flexibility and great power of extension, both of them important properties in a young and rapidly lengthening tissue. At first they are filled with a watery fluid, but in older stems they contain nothing but air. The analogy between the spiral vessels of a plant and the air tubes of an insect is very close. An elder shoot contains a great mass of pith, which at first consists of small cells full of sap. In a later stage, the cell sap dries up and the cells are filled with air. Of what use can dead air-filled cells be to the stem? It is plainly advantageous that the wood of the young elder branches should be placed far from the center and not collected in one solid mass. The rigidity of a hollow cylinder is far greater than that of a solid rod of the same weight per unit length. I suppose that it does not matter much at the moment whether the central space is filled by pith or by a simple air space, as in the stalks of cow parsnip or the hallums of grasses. A continuous cavity would, however, be dangerous to a stem which was destined to thicken and last for many years. It would give great opportunities to wood-eating insects and wood-destroying fungi. If the branch should ever be broken across, water would get in and do great mischief. Pith is much safer, and it costs the plant next to nothing, for it contains hardly any solid matter. Here again we find animals using the same expedients as plants. A porcupine quill, or the shaft of a feather, is very like an elder shoot packed with pith. In all of them, great firmness is attained with the smallest possible weight. As the elder trunk increases in diameter, 
the pith remains unchanged. Does this mean that the disposition of the wood becomes less and less advantageous as the stem gets bigger? Not necessarily, but the great relative rigidity ceases to be so important a consideration when the ascending stem has gained two or three inches of thickness. Henceforth, it will have rigidity enough for every purpose. The property of chief importance to the old stem is its weight-supporting power. This is mainly a question of the number of the wood fibers, and hardly at all of their arrangement. The hollow cylinder placed vertically can support no greater load than a solid rod of the same weight per unit length. The strength of the branches, which stand out more or less horizontally, is of less vital importance to the tree. They will grow as far as they can safely grow, and that must suffice. It is by no means an unqualified advantage to cover as great an area as possible, and the elder very likely thrives as well in its modest way as if it had the far-spreading boughs of a beech tree. Climbing Plants of the Hedge There are a number of climbing plants in our hedge. We will first learn their names, and then try to find out something about their mode of life. Thomas. This plant is better known by its English name of Black Bryony. I much prefer English names for the use of schoolboys, but the name of Black Bryony seems to me open to serious objections, for it is so far from being a bryony that it does not belong to the same family, nor even to the same primary division of flowering plants. Bryony is a dicotyledon, Thomas a monocotyledon. Further, red bryony takes its distinctive name from its red berries. We should therefore suppose that black bryony would have blackberries. No such thing. It has green berries, which when ripe turn to a brilliant red. There is nothing black about it but its root. I do not care to coin a new name, and the Latin name is neither long nor hard to pronounce. The proper spelling is, I believe, T-A-M-N-U-S, which in Pliny is the name of some kind of wild vine or creeper. Any of the descriptive books will show you how to tell a Thomas, and I will pass by all its other peculiarities in order that we may fix our attention upon its mode of climbing. The stem and its long slender branches twine round their supports and thus get sufficient hold. They are often angular. What advantage is there in the angles? See Hint 3. In what direction does the stem of Thomas twine? Some twining stems form right-handed spirals, like a corkscrew or any other common screw, but Thomas makes left-handed spirals. A stem which twines like that of Thomas is also said to follow the sun, because its growing tip rotates from east by south to west. Before the movements of twining plants had been carefully observed, some people thought that their spiral growth was to be explained by their attempts to follow the sun. Mention facts which refute this supposition. See Hint 4. How many twining plants can you find in or about the village in which we live? I know of six besides Thomas. One is to be found in the hazel copse, another only in a single cornfield, where it climbs up the wheat stalks, a third overruns the hedge of a cottage garden, the fourth overhangs the vicar's front door, and two more are to be found in his kitchen garden. See Hint 5. Look out for these, but do not ravage either the gardens or the fields. Try to make out the names of these twiners, and mark which follow the sun and which twine against the sun. Here is a stick of hazel with a spiral groove running round it. What made the groove? Can you find more groove sticks in the hazel cups? 
The upper lip of the groove is thicker and more prominent than the lower lip. Why? See hint six. Hop. Watch the tip of a growing hop shoot and see how it bends round and round its support, swaying in turn towards every point of the compass. If the movement were much more rapid, we might compare it to the weighted string which the thoughtless schoolboy swings round his head. As the string curls close about a lamppost which it happens to strike, so the hop shoot, slowly swinging in a circle, curls round any support which it can reach. This happy illustration is borrowed from Darwin. The climbing hop stem not only becomes curled, but twisted about its axis. If a shoot is marked not far from its apex by a spot of paint, the twisting can be measured. Darwin found that it is not constant for the same species of twining plant. The mere act of twining produces one twist for every circle completed. But if the climbing shoot gets a good hold of its support, it may develop a greater amount of twist than this. A long, free shoot, well supported below, sometimes becomes extremely twisted by its own twining. The observer who has a climbing hop under his eye should mark on paper the movements of the apex, note the distance from the support with a pair of compasses, and the varying angular position by the eye. Measurements taken at intervals of a quarter of an hour will furnish a record of the direction and rate of the angular movement. If the young shoot is pulled about, it reverses its direction of movement for a time, and a free shoot will sometimes do the same. Thus, the exploring shoot is enabled to keep out of the way of moving objects and to feel about for a fresh support when it has been brought to a stand. One of my hop shoots was stopped by an overhanging stone cornice. It persisted for a long time as if trying vainly to force a passage, but at length sank to a lower position and there found a suitable support. The rate of ascent may be unexpectedly rapid. Between May 20th and June 3rd, 1902, a hop shoot climbed 38 inches, that is, nearly three inches a day. When the growth was most rapid, the shoot gained four inches of height in 24 hours. In the same time, the tip of the hour hand of my watch traveled six inches. Do you find in a hop anything which hinders the slipping of the stem or its branches? They are rough to the feel and on examining them closely, you will see that the roughness is due to a multitude of small hooks. Some climbing plants do not twine at all, but trust entirely to their hooks. We may call these hook climbers. How many more hook climbers can you find in our hedge? Bramble. What parts of a bramble bear hooks? I should like a drawing, or failing that, a photograph of a bramble spray in the hedge. Choose your point of view carefully so as to bring out the arching of the leaves and the curvature of the free end of the spray. Can you find a rooting branch of bramble? If so, remark its tip and see what unexpected peculiarity it presents. See hint seven. How does the bramble creep along a hedge? How does it make its way to other hedges? Briar. From what part of the stem do the prickles proceed? Do they contain any wood or any vessels? Are the prickles of the bramble of the same structure as those of briar? Point out the difference in structure between such prickles as these and the thorns of the hawthorn. Point out also any difference in function. Cleavers. A third hook climber of the hedge is cleavers or goosegrass. Its hooks are so minute that you do not see them at all without a lens. Yet you know how it clings to clothes, and you see how it can cling to leaves and stalks in the same way. Draw some of the hooks with a microscope or lens 
and see if you can discover any purpose besides climbing to which they are put by this plant. How does cleavers disperse its fruits? Ivy. There is no ivy in the hedge, but plenty on old walls in the village. How does ivy climb? Bring specimens to prove what you say. Why do the tips of the leaves of climbing ivy always point downwards? See Hint 8. How do the flowering and fruiting branches differ from the climbing stem? Clematis. If we lived in one of the southern counties of England, and particularly if we lived on a chalky soil, we should find clematis or traveler's joy growing freely in our hedges. But it is not seen in Yorkshire except where planted. If you have an opportunity of examining this or any clematis of the gardens, observe how it grasps its support. The leaf stalk is sensitive to contact on its under surface and curls round any fixed object which is not too large. Then it thickens and stiffens along the curved part and at last becomes immovably fixed. The tropiolum of our gardens climbs in the same fashion. Bryony. The Rio Bryony of our hedges, often called Red Bryony, has a method of climbing different from all the climbers which have been mentioned hitherto. It sends out a long, slender tendril, which grasps a twig, and then contracts into a close-wound coil, dragging the stem nearer to its support and securing it firmly, though through a certain amount of free play, which is useful in a gale of wind. Observe an unattached tendril, and see how it reaches out for something to cling to. Its tip is curled, but it is almost straight for the greater part of its length. What is less easily seen is that the tip revolves steadily until it has caught hold, sweeping round and round as if exploring. The coil into which the tendril is thrown after it has secured itself is not a simple but a double coil, half being right-handed and the other half left-handed. A short, uncoiled piece unites the two. Why is the coil reversed? See Hint 9. Vines and passion flowers are excellent examples of tendril bearers, but these can seldom be examined except in greenhouses. You can, however, easily procure the tufted vetch, Vicia cracca, which runs in the hedges, and this is well worthy of study. Charles Darwin, in his admirable book on climbing plants, which first incited naturalists to take special notice of their contrivances, tells us about many other tendril bearers, and among the rest he describes the Virginia creeper. You can read, or better still, see for yourselves, how the tendrils of the Virginia creeper seek the shade, because there they are most likely to find a surface of support. How the tips of the branch tendrils, as soon as they touch the bricks or plaster, swell, turn red, and form adhesive cushions, which are pressed into all the inequalities of the surface, how the tendrils coil themselves as soon as they have got a firm hold, and so drag up the branch, and how they hold fast for years, long after they are dead. None of the books of the great naturalist illustrate better than this one how the true student of nature will discover in the commonest plants and animals beautiful adaptations which had escaped the notice of all generations of men. Even more worthy of study than the contrivances themselves are the qualities of mind and character which make a keen observer and a sagacious interpreter. The advantages got by climbing are very obvious. The climber is enabled to throw the burden of its support upon other plants. It forms little wood and grows fast. In England, there is only one climbing plant which can ascend tall trees. Name that one. In hot countries, there are many. Can you tell why? Can you point out any peculiarity 
which helps us to understand how it is that ivy alone among our climbers should be able to ascend the highest tree? See Hint 10. So a few garden nasturtiums, tropiolum, at the foot of a hedge. When they come up, draw the leaf of a young seedling, a leaf preparing to catch hold, and a leaf which has got a firm hold. We are told in systematic books that tropiolum comes close to the geranium family, but differs in some small details, such as the alternate instead of opposite leaves and the want of stipules. Show by means of a very young seedling of tropiolum that the leaves are at first opposite and furnished with stipules. What conclusion do you draw from these facts? Classify all the climbing plants that you have come across according to their modes of climbing. Do all the plants that climb belong to one family? Do all the climbing plants of the same family climb in the same way? See Hint 11. Nettle-leaved hedge plants. A number of plants which seek the protection of the hedge have so similar a form that they may perhaps be mistaken for one another when not in flower. They have upright stems which give off ovate leaves, chordate at the base, and coarsely serrate. The common nettle is a good example. So are the various plants called dead nettles, a name that should be dropped as misleading. Plants not allied to the true nettles in any way, but having the same form of leaf and something of the same general look. Among these are the water mint, hedge stachys, cat mint, the common galliopsis or hemp nettle, black whorehound, the white spotted and yellow lamiums, and wood sage. Though all these have stalks and leaves which resemble those of a stinging nettle, they belong to the labiate family. We also have in the crucifer family the nettle-leaved garlic mustard, aliaria. Evidently, it is not close relationship that causes these plants to look so much alike. Do they profit by their resemblance to the stinging nettle, being mistaken for it and so let alone? Is there anything in the shape of the leaf particularly appropriate to a plant which is shaded on one side and tolerably illuminated on the other? Has this shape of leaf anything to do with rain drip or with bud packing? I have put such questions to myself for many years, but cannot answer them. End of part one of chapter thirty one.